What do men want? Just a pretty woman to love and to take care of them. Love me. Love me. What I'm really interested in is love. You might say I'm addicted to love. Witchcraft is just a way of concentrating energy. You can only work with what's already there. I just use sex magic to create love magic. Hello, mystical beings, and welcome to another episode of Mystic in the Hague. I'm Leah. And I'm Danielle. And today we'll be talking about the 2016 cult horror film, The Love Witch. So this was a first time watch for you, Danielle. Any mm-hmm. immediate thoughts? Well, it really adheres to my aesthetic of what I enjoy. So it's very visually pleasing, which I love. It's not very scary. Like it's a horror movie, but it's not a horror movie. So that's also nice. Um, And I also enjoy, I enjoy like the spells that they used and like what they, the magic that they actually talked about Mm -hmm. in the the love witch like I, I liked that aspect and um I also liked that we, they kind of talked about which is funny because it's kind of we'll probably talk about this more but like what does love magic even mean and like what is love magic and what is the repercussions of using love magic in a certain way and I don't think people really think about those things when they engage in love magic Cool. So I'll read the synopsis and the director statement for the film. And when we can talk briefly about the making of, and then I, we can talk a bit about the witchcraft in the actual film. So I did some reading up on it um, on Anna Biller's website, as well as her blog, which is a really interesting blog if you're interested in filmmaking. So The Love Witch is written, produced, and directed by Anna Biller, stars Samantha Robinson as Elaine. And Chef's so, kiss right there. Just right? Chef's kiss. Yes. Yeah. So well cast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the cinematography was done by M. David Mullen. And production and costume design was done by Anna Biller. And she pretty much curated everything in the movie, including making a lot of the things herself including the altar that we see Elaine working at and the massive pentacle rug that we see in one scene. All right, so the synopsis. For those of you who haven't seen the film, Elaine, a beautiful young witch, is determined to find a man to love her. In her Gothic Victorian apartment, she makes spells and potions and then picks up men and seduces them. However, her spells work too well and she ends up with a string of hapless victims. When she finally meets the man of her dreams, her desperation to be loved will drive her to the brink of insanity and murder. With a visual style that pays tribute to technicolor thrillers of the 60s, The Love Witch explores female fantasy and the repercussions of pathological narcissism. And here's what Anna Biller said about the film, her director statement. I wanted to make a movie about a witch because I think that every woman is made to feel like a witch by men who don't understand her that is mysterious, dangerous, different, abnormal. Elaine, the main character of The Love Witch, has men constantly freaking out around her because of her sexiness. 
but they don't really love her and this makes her feel lonely and alienated so she takes her revenge it's a fun movie in that i went all the way with my cinema fantasies going deeply into the visual world of an iconic witch but it's also a realistic portrait of a pathological narcissist elaine is monstrous wreaking havoc whenever she wherever she goes but is also sympathetic because she has essentially been driven mad by being a woman and is struggling to find love and acceptance in a world that has disappointed her at every turn. So the technical aspects of the film are actually really interesting. Like Anna Biller is definitely a major cinephile, loves old Hollywood, and that plays into the overall making of the film. So like the visual style of the film is very, very intentional. Both she and M. David Mullen were super into old camera tricks, um, how they made films, the idea of Technicolor. So the film itself is shot on 16 millimeter, entirely using film stock. And there's a lot of lighting, a lot of use of gels. And I guess M. David Mullen did a lot of like DIY on the spot tricks to like soften the edges of the camera play around with vintage lenses, play with, around with vintage filters. And that definitely is what makes the film so visually stunning mm-hmm. is the use of all these vintage film techniques. It's so unique and so curated perfectly. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's actually not a period piece, even though the film, it's, it's definitely anachronistic, but it's not a period piece at all. Mm-hmm but they still used a lot of old film techniques like using rear projection, which if you watch old movies where they're driving in a car, the scenes you see behind them are shot or um, are projected on a screen behind them, which they took from filming whatever they want to have behind the car, which I never knew about that. <laughs> I didn't know that's how they did it. So the fact they did that in 2016 when you obviously don't need to was a really interesting choice and all of these deeply intentional decisions are just so interesting to me sorry you said they did do that or not do that they did did. do that okay okay yeah so anytime you see elaine driving in a car or any character driving a car it's all done using the rear projection technique okay so i watched the movie I think it was my third or fourth time seeing the film. So I watched it with audio commentary, which was super cool. Um, I'm definitely one of those nerds who really likes watching movies with audio commentary. It's basically watching, like listening to a podcast in a lot of ways, but it's about a movie that you did like, didn't like. I've watched movie, like I listened to audio commentary on movies that I didn't like very much and in a lot of ways, it made the film better. Interesting. <laughs> Which, yeah. Um, the key example of that is probably uh, Rob Zombie's 31, which I thought was a dumb movie. Like, I love Rob Zombie. Yeah. But 31 was such a dumb movie. But watching yeah. it, like, there were so many intentional decisions in terms of the filmmaking and in terms of his character choices and different choices. And like Rob Zombie pulls a lot of inspiration from like silent films Mm -hmm. and also old Hollywood. So becoming cognizant of those references is always really interesting. One thing that I found really interesting in the audio commentary was Anna Biller was talking about 
specifically in terms of the witch bottles that we see throughout the film. Anna Biller made a lot of decisions that, like, if you're someone who has studied witchcraft or is a witch or is interested in the history of witchcraft, you'll see these things throughout the film and see them and, like, know that they're accurate, know that they're true, like the witch bottles, like um, the tarot card meetings, etc. Yeah. But it's nice because if you don't know anything about that, it's not going to subtract anything from the film. Mm-mm which I think was a really clever decision. Did Anna Biller ever talk about where some of her spells were rooted from or that where she grabs certain magic practices from? So she touches on it briefly and she talks about a little bit in the blog posts that she made before actually like releasing the film. Okay. So in the blog, she mentions a lot of things to do with 1670s Wicca, mentions some things about Crowley, like the altar that Elaine works at is made from the specifications of Crowley from his okay. writing. Um, this is an interesting note from the blog that she wrote. Much of the interesting witch material I could find comes from the 60s and 70s as the witch was revived during the sexual revolution as a symbol of female sexual freedom. There was a lot of prurient curiosity at the time about naked witches and their rites and orgies. Pulp novels and softcore films used the witch as a figure more than at any time before or since, as people at that time became curious about a woman's insides and what the extent and quality of her sexual experience might be. I've taken this fantasy of the sexy naked witch from the pulp novels and movies of that time and used it liberally in the film, taking fragments from different sources and weaving them together with my own experiences to create a perplexing mix of images and ideas. I I do think it's interesting that she pulled so much from that kind of thing, because in the 60s and 70s, there was a huge resurgence in terms of the history of witchcraft and or of practicing witchcraft in general mm-hmm. so there's a lot of magazines like black magic and um i can't remember the other titles but it was a big thing and it's interesting because witchcraft kind of makes like a 20 year like every 20 or so years it makes a major resurgence in pop mm-hmm. culture and we're kind of in that phase now jeff and i were talking about how there is a lot of inspiration from wicca and like Gardnerian Wicca specifically in the film, but it also like kind of melts together with like some satanic ideas and some Thelemic ideas. Can you and, talk about Thelemic ideas? Um, so Thelema is basically the type of magic that Alistair Crowley practiced. There's a tarot deck called the Thelemic Tarot. Oh, it's full. Ph- it's not Thelemic. It's Thelemic. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so I don't know a ton about uh, a ton about Thelema. I haven't really read any of Aleister Crowley's writing. Me neither. But pretty much everything that he wrote about and discussed took what was previously um, an entirely kind of like based in secret societies where you had to really be initiated in order to be part of magical groups and he distilled it and made it more accessible to anyone through the use of print media so his writing and everything eventually inspired most of what we do in modern witchcraft today 
after like through the distillation of like Dianic magic and Wicca and everything. So it's actually kind of interesting that a lot of Wicca is actually pretty closed because it cycles back to the secret society origins of a lot of magic. So that's interesting. Yeah, Jeff and I were talking a bit about how a lot of the representation of witchcraft in the 60s and 70s kind of just melds everything together and kind of creates this fantastical representation of covens and magical practices. And I think we see a lot of that in the film. Even Anna Biller talks about it a bit with her experience of covens where you'd have Wiccans hanging out with Satanists, hanging out with like whoever and all practicing yeah. rites together. But it's not really how covens are usually depicted ever. It's usually like, oh, you're practicing this type of witchcraft and that's it. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that there is this meld and kind of this cocktail of witchcraft that ends up being depicted in something like The Love Witch and arguably most witchcraft movies in general. <laughs> yes. Picking and choosing when to pro- when certain things are all right and okay. And honestly, like, it's really reflective of how the majority of the witches that I know practice, mm-hmm. which is like, you using support from people who have rooted practices in different areas or belief systems. Which it's actually kind of interesting. That just made me think, um, I wonder if the rise of witchcraft within pop culture is kind of what caused the the uptake in, uh, or I guess the uprise in eclectic witchcraft. Um, Mm -hmm. where because that's what we see so often in pop culture where it's just kind of a mixture of everything if that's why so many people do consider themselves eclectic witches but then I also know witches who are like 90s witches let's say who or like older witches who are in their 40s or older who are like no, this is the way that I practice. Like this is, it's really important that you are rooted in a certain specific like type of witchcraft. I don't know. I feel like it's more witchcraft in general is more accessible now than it has ever been. Personally, I believe that um, based on the amount of information that's like being thrown at us. Um, At least terms that a lot of people may not have the ability to to understand or to to recognize because like I want to say like research is still like you know inaccessible in itself like that's important to note but I I don't know I just feel like there is this piece of though where yes I think it gave rise to it because I also think people are really just fascinated by vintage culture in general you know what I mean Mm -hmm. um but I definitely know some elder witches who are very much like, no, your your witchcraft should be rooted in something. And it's definitely common, but there most witches that are really grounded in a particular practice are a lot older. Yeah. And they were learning their practice kind of betwixt when it was really big in pop culture because like in the 90s and early 2000s there was a huge resurgence of witchcraft in pop culture yeah so we saw we see just like a ton of books and media and everything 
created about the topic in the 90s, which also kind of created a bit of a witch craze in terms of people like using it as a way to reclaim their femininity and themselves and everything and empowering themselves. Mm -hmm. And the like witchcraft in the 90s, I think is actually really closely linked to ideas of girl power and everything. 100%. Yep. That kind of, I think, because we were growing up with that in the 90s, it kind of influences our craft and everything because the idea of witchcraft and feminism are so closely linked in our mind and in our pop culture. But witches that are a bit older, they were probably starting to get into witchcraft in like the late 70s, early 80s, when it wasn't as much in the public consciousness so they were truly practicing it and like having to find covens, having to find books. And I think of Lori Calbit. Yeah. Or sorry, Lori Cabot, um, who's considered the head witch in Salem. She is like basically responsible for Salem becoming a witch town. She just moved there because it was cheap at the time and grew a massive following and wrote a ton of books and everything but she was one of those elder witches who was kind of in the position where she felt called to it but she kind of had to find it on her own and a lot of the books written at that point were more like ritual based magic and then from there a lot of them would distill it down into like less rigid and still linked to feminism Mm -hmm. but still like drawing from the more coven-based ritual-based ceremonial magic that's a bit more rigid mm-hmm. but I mean maybe it's more effective I don't know <laughs> I know maybe we'll have to try it out yeah it's actually something I've wanted to experiment with is like following spells to the letter I'm just not it's it's not my skill in life it's not mm-hmm. my lot in life but it's It'd be, it'd be a curious experiment for sure. I don't know. My Aquarius side of me is just like, no, fuck rules. Like, you don't need them. You, this is your reality. You get to choose and create it the way that you want to choose and create it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. And also, I kind of get worried. Like, what if the outcome of what they want is like really, like, aligned to who we are as people? Like, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I just get worried about those things. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting conundrum in a lot of ways because, I mean, the results must exist. Otherwise, people wouldn't write books about them and wouldn't produce them. But then also that kind of, the flip side of that is the over-commercialization of spirituality and how people just print whatever books and and recycle things yeah and without trying exactly so like personally I try not to not to read too many witchcraft books that aren't from especially witch history books I try to stay away from any that are like post 2000 post even post 95 just because after that point it's just all recycling the same information from earlier books and it's just a filtration of these ideas where it's like, okay, well, that's cool, but I could just read this other book from the 50s that you're quoting and get a clearer representation of what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So um, the magic in the movie. <laughs> 
Let's talk about it. So I thought one thing that'd be interesting to talk about is the tarot cards that are archetypes in the film. So the most prevalent card we see is the three of wands. Mm -hmm. And then in the movie, there's two different tarot spreads. One is related to the death of the, I can't remember the character's names, but there's like the guy with like the longer hair and the beard. Um, and she pulls The first heart. husband, right? I um, mean, not a husband. Um, the first I'm, actually, I'm gonna pull up the IMDB real quick and just so I know which character is which. So we have the three of wands. I also saw the three of swords as well. Sorry, did I say three of wands? I meant three of swords. Okay, okay. Yeah, the three of wands does not show up. Okay, so the first spread we see in the movie it pertains to Wayne Peters who's kind of like the character he kind of has like a professor vibe with like his corduroy jacket his beard and his longer hair I think he is a literally a professor I think he is yeah I think so (laughs) so typical like it reminds me of like all the professors I've ever had interactions with like and it's so yeah. funny because like the clothing he's wearing in the movie are just his normal clothes. They didn't like give him a costume or anything. So he's just like sad. So with the spread pertaining to him, we have the five of cups, the tower and the three of swords. Okay. So the five of cups, the tower and the three of swords. So when, okay. So are we wanting to talk about the, that particular spread? We can. Cause like, I mean, I think, I think it'd be interesting. Okay. So that would be then past, present, and future. Like when I saw that, that's what exactly what I saw were the three cards. And I was like, oh, that represents past, present, and future. And we said five of cups, three of swords. No, five of cups, tower, and the three of swords, which is really interesting because can I – okay, so (laughs) the way that I saw it, because this was obviously what – I, anytime I see tarot, I'm always kind of like, okay, what is it signifying in this particular moment? And when we saw the five of cups, I felt like that was really representing it's in the past. So it's representing a lot of her experience with love and connection to love. And then the tower represents her current. So her current state and her moving to this new town is kind of like hoping for a new start based on some things that happened in the past, but then she met this human, right? And this is like often a signifier of a tower's like unexpected experience. And then you have the three of swords, which is the future. And if you've ever seen a traditional um, tarot deck that's specifically based on the Rider Waite Smith deck, the three of swords is a heart with three swords in it and um, blood is coming out of the heart. And so it has to do with air, but it's interesting because that's one of the most emotionally driven cards that in the air suit, if we're talking about swords. And so it usually signifies a lot of like grief and loss and heartbreak, which is so fitting of it. That's not surprising that we see the three of swords throughout this movie Mm -hmm. because based on um, her experience with love, But I found that like very interesting, but it's also very much like the classic cards of what you expect for when you're talking about love, like not only the tower, but the five of cups as well, because of the feeling of loss, because the five of cups is around disappointment, but not really realizing also what's available to you behind that disappointment. 
which she doesn't see a lot of that too, right? The availability to her. I thought that that was a really great way for somebody who is like learning about tarot or like who's just like kind of familiar with tarot to understand. Um, And the three card spread is like the most accessible like spread ever. It's one that people who are still pros at tarot still use when wanting to like look at themselves. Yeah, I just found it really interesting and like fascinating. And like, I think she also does another spread. I I can't remember. It was a week ago since I've watched it. Yeah, so there's another point where Richard, um, who's Trisha's husband, and they have a... um, Richard and Elaine have an affair while she's away he's sitting at his coffee table and he has a deck of cards in front of him so it's like maybe alluded to that he pulled cards for himself and at that point we see the nine of swords the three of swords and the devil which again he totally did I love it that he did it for himself you know like a little bit of while he's in like the throes of emotional agony lusting and yearning for Elaine which is the worst time to ever do any type of like tarot reading like even going to a tarot reader do not do it when you're emotionally charged like unless you're very confident that that person can hold space for you because it is not going to go well. Like no. you're just going to pick up on the current energy and everything else is going to be muted. Like do not do it. Yeah. Do not do it. No, we've all done it. And I'm saying because we've all done it before who have ever, who has reads for people. We've all, we're saying it because we practice it. We've experienced yeah. the throes of that and like what that means. So don't do it. But I loved it that he did it. And yeah, it was the, sorry, the nine of swords, three of swords and the devil. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's like so interesting. The fact that nine of swords is around like his past is like, I feel like it's a little bit of a mixture of his past relationship and his past relationship with her as well. Mm. So his current, with his current marriage, like his past relationship or current marriage to Trish as well as Samantha as well. That's mm-hmm. her name, right? Uh, the character's name is Elaine. Oh my God. Why did I say Samantha? That is the actress's name. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) That's why. Okay. So Elaine, and I think like the three of swords is obviously the representation of how he's feeling about this experience now. And the devil is interesting because I mean, it's foretelling of what is to come from her. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's almost a representation of where he is psychologically in that moment because he's already, he's in bondage. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in the synopsis of the film that Annabella wrote, it's this idea that the love spells work too well. Mm -hmm. And in pretty much every instance, it basically results in these men in bondage, desiring her and not able to break free from it. Yeah. And the only way to like be free of it is death. Yeah, there's, sorry, just start thinking about the visual language of the film and how mm-hmm. interesting it is and how pretty much like right away in the, in the first scene, in the opening scene of the movie, we see the three of swords. And then at the end, when she's killing um, the cop character, it, like the the scene um and apparently this wasn't intended at all because so 
all the paintings in Elaine's room, Annabelle are commissioned from an artist. And at that point, the film wasn't fully fleshed out. So the fact that the painting of this character of this female character holding a bloody knife and like a heart a bleeding heart after stabbing a man the fact that that's parallel um paralleled and reflected in the film and it's kind of the end scene was purely accidental but it works out so well especially because there's a lot of the imagery that like it shares a lot of imagery with the three of hearts or uh, three of swords i didn't put two and two together until you just pointed that out yeah it is so true because the three of swords yeah again is with the stabbing of the heart like three swords in it yeah of course that's going to be the way that it ends how did you feel about the spreads um they're they're not chill spreads (laughs) they're they're not a good time like if I pulled those for someone I'd be like sorry dude like we can work through this but if I got those cards and like pulling for myself I feel a little nervous not gonna lie like I'd work through it properly and accordingly but yeah like surface based and also from like a cinematic point of view because like a lot of the decisions that are less accurate in the film were made for like this to be cinematic and all those cards are very cinematic cards they look Mm -hmm. amazing they're very evocative when they're put in that context it really drives home the idea that these are scary cards they're not chill mm-hmm. and pretty much every time elaine never really seems to take the cards to heart the same way but she's like a pathological narcissist she's terrifying and she just wants love and like the cards don't really tell her what she wants and then she just kind of proceeds in like these psychotic ways Mm-hmm. And then she actively does things to change the course of those cards. Yeah. Like those are like, you know what I mean? Like the future, you can always yeah. change your future. And, but it's still like what's interesting, the end results are still the same results of what mm-hmm. she wanted to change. Yeah. It's just one of the great details. Like, mm-hmm. um, I really appreciate those types of details in the film. Um, Anna Biller did a lot of research, um, including some from from some books that are like had 200 copies printed. So some deep, deep cuts. But one detail that I didn't I never considered or really noticed until watching it with the audio commentary was when Richard pulls those cards for himself and then he's like not having a good time. And he goes over to the drink cart and he like pulls up a bottle and it's like. That's like a maple syrup looking bottle. That's weird. He's drinking the contents of one of Elaine's witch bottles. What? Yeah, he's drinking from a witch bottle. And like, if you look really closely, you can see the rosemary sprig. And like, we don't know what the contents are. Oh, and she sells them at the shop. So he yeah. he, he so, went to go buy. Well, oh. she may have left it there. She may have given True. it to him. Because, like, she's done with, she makes witch bottles for a number of different reasons during the movie. (laughs) But, yeah, like, the realization that he's drinking the witch bottle. And, yeah, traditionally, witch bottles from, like, the 16th and 17th century, they contain nails, they contain urine, they contain hair, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, like, not the stuff you want to be consuming in your body. I don't 
think that's what that bottle contained because it looks like the ones that she sells. So it's probably like wine and rosemary and like some other things, but still like knowing that she put a used tampon in the one that she made for Wayne, maybe there's some other stuff going on. And also like, that is very narcissistic of like, oh, here's pieces of me, like consume me. Yeah. I never really like, it feels like an old film. And so because of that, and because it's never like overtly scary, it's just like, in a lot of ways, it's more of a, like a low key psychological art film Mm -hmm. more than anything. I never really noticed how pathological Elaine really is. Like I've always known it, obviously she kills people, but like watching her facial expressions and how dead her eyes look sometime and how manipulative she is like and cunning like she actively pursued her friend's husband yeah like I wrote the phrase Elaine is a villain framed as a sympathetic character oh it's true and like the way she says oh honey or oh baby like it's just yeah just oh gosh yeah it's a lot (laughs) it's such a cool film in so many ways so Anna Biller wrote a blog post about how we should stop calling films feminist because oftentimes it's just a way of labeling something that we like to elevate mm-hmm. it and be like, look how good this is and equal opportunity and blah, blah, blah. I don't totally agree with everything, but it's fine. She makes some good points. But through that framing, it's like this movie is... It does have feminist overtones for sure, at least in the fact that it's very anti-patriarchal. Mm-hmm. And apparently one deleted scene um, is Trish and Elaine talking about the patriarchy for a pretty long time. Yeah, because they kind of talked about, like Trish does question like the way that, you know, Elaine view love, views love, right? Yeah, and how it's and like- a relationship. Yeah. yeah. And there's undertones of like, questioning this like joker of a dude who's like the I don't know how to what what I would call him like a coven leader (laughs) and like basically he you know uses his power to control yeah particularly like women even though he says he's like wants women to feel empowered and all this other stuff but then is like that creepy dude who yeah under the guise of like feminism do you know what I'm saying yeah and it's kind of interesting because they actually mention how like he and his wife are talking to like the Gemini twins being like laying out all these things and it kind of raises the points about how a man can say one thing and it'll come off as sexist but a woman can say the same thing and it'll come off as feminist and it's like that's so interesting and pretty true actually Mm-hmm. because it's like yeah a man telling a woman to use her feminine wiles to control men it's like dude what but if a woman tells you that it's like yeah that's super empowering and it's like it's true but I also think like though it comes down to intentionality and trust oh, right yeah. like you know what I mean I think that's so to be clear for folks you know what I mean like there is that difference of that yeah. I don't know that's my I don't know if that's what you were trying to say or what we're I mean I'm just saying like in like a philosophical kind of way yeah in general like um two quotes that I wrote down from Anna Biller in terms of the film so one was how the Stepford wives were actually a pretty important reference um in the research for the film okay. in that the film 
covers a lot of topics about the tyranny of male fantasy, as she puts it, which is definitely true. And on the flip side, she also mentions that the film depicts a lot of the horror of femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, she mentioned that in relation to Elaine's character waking him off the couch after her night with Wayne and going into the bathroom and inserting a tampon and like she's carrying her wig with her and her makeup is all smeared and she's fixing it whatever that moment is like yeah the horror of femininity especially um performative femininity perform oh gosh yeah yeah I I think is also an ongoing theme in the film because I mean that's what Elaine is doing ultimately even though formative it's yeah Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is encouraged by her coven and the people she's around and what men have always how how men have always told her to be because like she gets these like memories of her first husband I guess her only husband Jerry telling her like to be better blah 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 and there's these implications of abuse and also from her dad yeah yeah so it's basically Elaine through the lens of someone who's super pathological choosing to embody how men have told her to be in her own way but Mm -hmm. one that eventually results in the death of men it's interesting because Elaine also uses a lot of glamour magic even the way that she enchants certain things like when you you can you can see that the way like when Trisha starts wearing her clothes using her makeup like those have all been enchanted with glamour magic and it's interesting because the way that we view glamour magic now or the way that it's marketed or viewed is based on aesthetic and feeling like or like the assumption that it's going to attract people mm-hmm. to you. Specifically, a lot of people use it like lately I've seen like to bring in a partner. And again, like how realistic, like recognizing like people hold dualities, right? Like, yeah. and is glamour magic the way that we're seeing it now really like shows those dualities or are we just altering people's perceptions of who we are? Which is, I know it is a part of that, but like, it's more around, is it to a place that's actually harming our identity? I don't know. Those are things that I think about. Yeah. And that's actually really interesting because I've been reading a book called Witches. I can't remember mm-hmm. who it's by. And that's a pretty common title, so I can't find it. Right <laughs> But it's talking about the power of women and women coming together and what it means to be a woman and goes through everything. And I've been on the chapter about makeup and how for the longest time it was kind of perceived that people with the intention of wearing makeup was to attract someone. Mm-hmm. And even aside from glamour magic, that's kind of always been the intention. Yep. Yet simultaneously the application of makeup and like watching makeup tutorials or whatever they are extremely void of the male gaze Mm -hmm. and pretty much anyone who isn't a woman in that space is like very effeminate maybe do drag or just like wearing makeup because Mm -hmm. they want to be androgynous whatever but it's not like the there's a void of 
like stereotypical masculinity within those spaces and that the realm that's being created by makeup at least like away from advertisements and everything is this idea that it's a space for femininity mm-hmm. and a space to empower and like represent a sense of individuality mm-hmm. but there's still this idea that it's always to attract a mate yeah. even though in Egyptian times everyone wore makeup because it was a connection to the divine it's it's interesting like I think that again I, I this is no judgment for anybody who wears makeup or you know wanting to do things to attract someone or bring someone in I think like where it's something to be mindful is just the way it's that constant again that buy-in or that pressure even attached to like what we were talking about last episode around social media and the needing to be is that constant pressure to perform and sometimes I don't know sometimes I think that glamour which like glamour magic can sometimes become performative in itself it's just something I have never really put two and two together until recently yeah I mean a big part of it is the intention Mm -hmm. like anything we do because like if you are doing your makeup because you feel an innate push to do it fed by the idea that no one will love you or that you're Mm -hmm. undesirable if you don't wear makeup then is it truly coming from a sense of self and a desire to represent yourself or is it a desire to disguise yourself which is also valid if you're choosing to alter yourself Mm -hmm. as like a form of something else some other type Mm -hmm. of magic that's valid as well Mm -hmm. and enhancing like what's the difference like maybe it's important to enhance then versus to shift like because I have heard that narrative of like people who have used glamour magic let's just alter your complete reality let's alter complete the way that you visually look and appear to a point where you're not who you are anymore and is that harmful like you know what I mean like is that harmful to baby witches who are getting to know themselves and their own power and like realizing your own magic is honestly the most like confidence booster I've personally have ever experienced and is that enough just yeah yeah, it's wild to me the way that Mm. they've incorporated all of those things yeah it's actually interesting because like traditionally in glamour magic like going back to like days of yore it started off as a means to disguise yourself and to Mm -hmm. alter your appearance completely so like invisibility spells could arguably be a type of glamour magic because you're totally but then in the past couple decades it's shifted to be something that's a bit more personal and empowering so I mean if there's a shift back to the old thing I mean fine but it kind of has the potential potential to remove the empowering narrative yeah and it's also kind of what's the root of it like back then it was more around like putting even visualizing like having a cloak or whichever or invisibility magic is also to protect oneself right not to shift someone's appearance in order to to bring in or to attract it was often the opposite does that yeah does that make sense yeah um and so it's just like the root of it where 
why. I mean, play around, like do your thing. Like I'm not wanting to police anybody about how they practice, but it just, I guess it's kind of the way that we are hearing about it lately that feels off. How did you like Trisha's character? She's always been an interesting character to me. I learned that color with her, like color theory is huge in the Love Witch. And Mm -hmm. so, and like the language of color is very prominent and very carefully selected. And it's interesting because for most of the film, she's shown wearing these like really dull pinks, very pastel, passive colors. And then when she dons Elaine's clothing lingerie she chooses hot pink and it's like almost the symbol of growth and empowerment within herself I don't dislike her character I think it's an interesting character um yeah how about you I liked her I think that it was good to see the sides of what you like the conversations that we hope to like have with people and accountability around with people I like that she doesn't really sell out Elaine well, it's kind of funny because they mentioned how for most of the movie, Trish is like a person who's totally oblivious to Elaine and how evil she is. And then at the end, when Trish is wearing black in the morning, she's kind of starting to notice just how dangerous and cold and manipulative Elaine is. So it's not even that maybe she didn't choose to out her, but there's just something about Elaine that manipulates everyone around her. Right. Both men and women. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that Elaine like didn't end up killing her though. I think it's... She may have. We never see Trish again after she holds the talisman and says, die, die, die. But she leaves, does she not? She does. But like, okay. so Trish leaves and drives away. And right. then Elaine grabs the talisman from her dresser and right. starts chanting. And we never see Trish again. So like. It could have been. Yeah. she. That's true. May have worked. We don't know. Oh, right. I forgot about the die, die thing. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, after that, the scene cuts to Elaine performing what appears to be a pretty intense love spell with her coven. Mm-hmm. She's holding the photo of the cop, and they're doing their thing. Yep. How did you feel about the coven? I thought it was interesting. It seems to be like, again, it was. I mean, Anna Biller said that it was. A lot of it was more of a cinematic choice than realistic choice, but it definitely made me think of the witch's Bible and everything I read in that book. (laughs) (laughs) I have to read that book. It's, it's dense. It's more of a reference book. The cover is more interesting than the contents (laughs) really. It's just a, I don't know where my copy is. It's basically just a how to of like, this is um, Gardner Wicca and this is how you do the things. It's I. One thing that was interesting regarding the coven scene specifically is in the film, we see at least as much male nudity as we do female nudity, Mm -hmm. which was was an intentional decision on their part. And Mm -hmm. M. David Mullen made the comment that it feels a lot less exploitative of Elaine to have as much male nudity. 
and I guess most of the extras in like the coven scenes were all artists and art models so they're all like just super comfortable and a bunch of them wearing costumes like brought their own costumes (laughs) they were just like perfect yeah um, but I don't have much of a comment on okay. the coven. It just, I mean, it made me think about, I recently did a post on my Patreon. I need to share to Medium as well soon um, about the ideas of the coven versus the solitary witch. And I feel like the high priest of the coven, who's kind of swarmy and gross, Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that after. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Um, he really represents the idea and the concept that I've gotten from a lot of people who've told me their experiences being in covens where- Same? Yeah. So I think that must have been an intentional choice to have the character that way, just because like we can argue that like sh- sexual initiation, if that's still a thing, I don't know is consensual but like it's still like well why it's you're all ready there's so many other ways to initiate someone that isn't sexual um totally i mean arguably like everyone gets initiated that way but it's like when more young women are being initiated than young men or we can argue that that has to do with like the types of people that are drawn to witchcraft which Mm -hmm. that's fine but it's still like, well, when you have a high priest like that and they're already in a position of power, where does it blur the line, the concept and of consent and true consent? I think we could argue that like that particular as someone from working in like sexual violence, like and the way that Elaine speaks about her time with that initiation there's undertones of it being sexual assault that you can deny. But like, also that's the reality of sometimes how sexual violence is. It's like very uncomfortable. You don't know, like there's not, it's not black or white. And in a sense of like, the fact is that some people who experience sexual violence or sexual assault don't even know it's sexual assault when it's late, like when it is sexual assault. Um, And so that was something that I think was like, really, I appreciated that it wasn't like outwardly out there because the fact is that's the reality of people who've experienced sexual violence. Like it's always going to be this undertone of you might even be continuing to have a relationship with someone who has sexually assaulted you. You know what I mean? And I think that was something that I don't think people really like. I don't know. I guess it's like, let's label it as it was, which was sexual violence, sexual assault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing with a lot of, um, at least with Gardner Wicca, and I'm sure Wicca has evolved in a lot of ways to be more, actually more equal and not just talking about the balance of male and fem- like the masculine and feminine or whatever. Back in the 60s and 70s, like with Gardner starting Wicca, the reality is it is a man putting himself in a position of power mm-hmm. over other people. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing about the idea of the coven versus solitary, it's like we've seen time and time and time again in history that when there is an opportunity for an abuse of power, that opportunity will be taken. Yeah. And it's not even just from men, like anyone can take that yep. sense of power and abuse it. But the point is like, if you don't give people that opportunity, 
people will generally be safer not to say that nothing can happen yep but I've always had a lot of discomfort around the idea of a lot of covens for that reason just Mm because it's like I don't see the difference between like standing in a church listening to a pastor and being in a coven circle and listening to a man tell me what to do I don't see the difference same. And also like where, who is labeling that you you hold more power than other folks or you're more connected to whoever is that you connect to the divine, whoever, like who's to say that you are the most connected? Like I just, it's usually appointed by the person yeah, or they feel like they are entitled to that exactly. position. It's proven that men will kind of just like apply for jobs that they're not fully suited to or Mm -hmm. um, whatever women will not. But like, I mean, I feel like that extension, that sense of privilege, that sense of entitlement can extend to everything, including Mm -hmm. being like, I'll start a coven because I know it's up and I'll be the high priest and it'll be great. Oh my God. It's like that in any type of spaces of recognition, like even spaces that are meant for women specifically or femmes, like males who are like cis hetero men who are hold more like, I don't know, let's say masculine energy or whatever, will often be provided cookies and like by other folks for doing the work or being put in a position of leadership based on the fact that, you know, they're a man and like, there's not that many um, men who are up for this cause. Like you see it in, in spaces specifically, like I'm talking about my experience when I worked in sexual violence, that would happen all the fucking time. And it was the most disgusting experience I've ever, ever seen. And I know that this has probably been people feel like that in any marginalized group when somebody who is not a part of the, like, that group they see that often so it's just it's really frustrating yeah well I mean of course it is but yeah Yeah. um so it's definitely interesting to see a really good embodiment of all these ideas in the film through Mm -hmm. that character because I feel like it's important to raise those questions and raise those ideas I'm just puking in a lot because it makes me so gross yeah I don't like it no (laughs) What else was on the the commentary that showed up for you? Um, I think I pretty much covered everything other than one thing that I thought was interesting is so a lot of people don't notice this. And I certainly didn't notice it until this pointed out to me. So in the first scene of the movie, Elaine is pulled over by the cop. Mm-hmm. That is the same cop character that she falls in love with later on. Is it? I kind of tried to look to see if that was. And I d- I've. Uh, there was a joke about how he went from beat cop to detective really quick, but whatever, a suspension of disbelief. Maybe he just like had like some service. I don't know how cops work. Anyways, um, but she's like really taken with him. And she's like, I've seen you before. I know I've seen you before. And then she's like, oh, you're the man in the cards. But there's actually nothing metaphysical about that moment. It's just they've yeah. literally met before and she recognizes him on like a subliminal level. <laughs> So I thought that was really interesting. It is true. That's so funny. Can we talk about that piece? Because I don't know, we both have psychic abilities, let's say. I think so. I mean, I think everyone does. It's just most people don't train it. 
Exactly. Agreed. Do you ever wonder sometimes I, this is kind of like, it's like the chicken or the egg. It's like, okay, is this my psychic side or is this just like my brain, like wanting me to understand something or wanting me to address something? Honestly, like, yes. Um, (laughs) I've also had like a number of times where it's like, oh, I totally knew you were going to say that or something. And then it's like, yeah, that's because I told you this already. You just forgot. And it's like, it wasn't a psychic moment. That was just yeah. me not paying attention. Cool. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and like, sometimes I do catch myself wondering if I'm looking for the patterns where they don't exist, just because, mm-hmm. you know, the human brain loves patterns. It loves looking for connections. Yeah. It's obsessed with it. It's such a fan of patterns and finding human faces and things. So like, sometimes I will kind of step back and be like okay I know that I can feel a difference between seeing random patterns and actually like having like a psychic connection or whatever but I just I don't listen to I don't look for the feeling enough I'll just kind of sometimes take it as it is and be like oh wow second moments like no it's just random patterns that you're just yeah. and there's no connection whatsoever <laughs> Not all, or you're just like, why are you in my life right now? Like, what's the purpose? And there's sometimes just no purpose. Yeah, sometimes life is totally random. <laughs> it's like, why Why did you show up? Like, what? What's this about? Yeah, oh my gosh. But I, I do appreciate the way that they talk about um, love magic in general. And like, as someone who has read for like a big part of like my beginning of my career in tarot was working in like love. Like that was a big piece and and it still shows up, but in different forms than the way it was like the debt, like I don't want to offend anybody or anything like, but there was a lot of desperation that would come with that. And from a lot of different reasons, like, you know, like there's a lot of like hurt and grief that comes with love and, and, and wanting and longing. Right. But I can see like how love magic can be rooted in that. And like how people even practice love magic now can, can be rooted in that, that key of desperation. It's like, you know, like that's also very interesting to me. And I think that's a big theme in the movie and like, is represented through the kinds of love spells that Elaine does is kind of playing on these ideas of desperation and also Mm -hmm. playing on the ideas of that are implanted in our brains that if we're not loved, we're not worth anything. Mm -hmm. We're not worthy. We're not valid, which as we know is extremely untrue. Yeah. (laughs) Especially since romantic love isn't the only type of love Mm -hmm. and it's not the, not, not the only important type of love. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel like it's unfortunate that some of the like most desired types of magic are ones that feed off of desperation. Mm-hmm. And that's why like Anna Biller actually talked in her blog post about the love witch, about the idea that like, if you search for love spells on the internet, you'll find billions of things and all of them kind of feed off of these deep-seated needs and wants to be loved and Mm -hmm. to like have that true like fairy tale fantasy love that 
we all know love isn't really like that. Love is so much more complicated, but it does feed off of these desperations. And like, there's people who take advantage of it and take advantage of that desperation. Yeah. With the character of Elaine, she could have been a person like in a different realm in a different movie. She's one of those people being like, I will fix your love life and I'll bring you all the love you want and you'll make millions of dollars and your life's going to be perfect. And it's just using magic and desire to manipulate people. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And also like, where is that root of the value, finding value in love? Like, where does it stem from? Like, we're specifically talking about like women specifically and like, and a lot of that is rooted by like the patriarchy. And honestly, a lot of abusive men that is very clearly shown in this movie around specifically Elaine and her experience with her father, as well as her past husband. And where is that desperation coming from is being devalued by abusive men and finding like, and like, honestly, all of the dudes she picks are shitty humans. They're like shitty humans. Like they're not like, they're the epitome of what we talk about patriarchal society. Like they are that. And so it's like, you're not even wanting healthy men. Like you want men who treat you like shit. The only one who's maybe a remotely okay man is the cop. And he ends up like not wanting her because he knows that she's not a good person. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he is. He has some all right yeah. tendencies. He, he's yeah. fine. He's a cop. We'll talk about that another day. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> like if we're removing the cop, but also you can't remove the cop from a person. So that's also another thing. But yeah. yeah. He could have been like a lawyer or like something like adjacent to law enforcement. He's the character like, he he's the only man who doesn't drink her love potion he throws it on the rug and she can't accept this rejection yeah and he also just wanted equal freedom like he wanted her to have as equal like experience of like her own independence and that's really interesting but it's also really interesting because it brings up the point of like if we're talking about like different attachment styles because there's anxious attachment avoidant attachment and secure attachment when we're talking about relationships as someone who's an avoidant or like maybe he would he would be considered avoidant human I think more so than anything if somebody's anxious like Elaine in the way that she loves people or shows up based on her past experience with trauma like all of it no wonder she sees that avoidant as being a rejection like how like that's so confusing for a brain that's like okay like I didn't know agency is something that can happen in a relationship and feel good in a relationship but that can also come out as rejection maybe he's more secure than I think I don't remember complete the video I have I have to yeah. remember I have to rewatch it I think there's something about how even when they're having like their faux wedding there's like an internal monologue and I think I could be wrong. I think his maybe has to do with the fact that, like he's not in this for the long term. Right. So he he's, is. A- yeah. Um, <laughs> but I could be mistaken. I really wanted to talk about how that marriage like ritual, how it was like a fake wedding, but really actually it was a real wedding. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like 
was probably a real wedding. <laughs> it was totally a real wedding spiritually because yeah. the binding, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a ritual. So Elaine, you're not practicing consent here. Is she ever practicing consent in anything that she did? Right. Let's just also talk about that. The fact yeah. that is the reality. It's like, that's the problem with love magic. It's usually not grounded in consent. And that's a problem. And that's why if you go searching for love spells on the internet and getting someone to do like a spell for you, you got to be real, real mindful of who's going to be impacted and affected because of that because it's not just you and casting spells on people is it's kind of a dick move and honestly a really good like tid like tidbit to take is if it's a good consensual like ethical witch they would never do it directly for specifically to someone um i mean hexings hexes and stuff is different um but in terms of like creating like consent of bringing someone in for love and connection, it will always be who is the best fit for you. That's yeah. how it should be rooted in. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, like acceptable types of love magic include like ones to help you love yourself, mm-hmm. um, ones to help you trust someone or like mm-hmm. bring like strength and trust in an already existing relationship mm-hmm. um things like that and like at the end of the day if you if you feel called to cast a love spell on someone like you're gonna even if that relationship takes hold you're always gonna know that you didn't trust in something you either didn't trust yourself you didn't trust the other person and it's inevitably gonna fall apart because you can't build relationships on lies exactly cannot and they're never going to show up the way that you want them to show up yeah I mean we've all fucked up though like we've all made shitty mistakes with regards to magic so don't feel cold guilt or any of that or shame around that like we we are saying these things based on learning you know like experience of learning if you've made a mistake in the past or screwed up, like just learn from it at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, like don't dwell on it and like ruin your life over it. Just Mm -mm. best thing you can do is learn. Exactly. And don't let it stop you from practicing magic. If that's like you're worried about, like based on what you've done before. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, um, to give back Mm -hmm. and to, to reclaim that, you know, and, um, and just like get grounded in your ethics. There was something around, she talks about using your will to get what you want. It's all about will, which I found really interesting. I mean, it's true in a lot of ways. Yeah, where it's just based on your will and also alignment too, I think. To an extent, yeah. Yeah, of like, if it's serving you and serving everybody. I mean, I guess you can create whatever you want. Yeah, I really like this movie. I mean, pretty much regardless of how witchcraft is depicted in film, I'm fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. Just because there's so many archetypes that are pulled up. Um, Not not only in how the witch is depicted, but how everything around them and everyone around them is depicted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Honestly, the aesthetic in itself is just like the visualize, like the visuals are just beautiful. And yeah. And like you wouldn't be able to achieve that using modern techniques. Mm-mm. And so, the costumes, like the everything was beautifully done. Like, and mm-hmm. like the sets in itself were amazing. Like, I just enjoyed all of it. And I loved, also, we ta- forgot to talk about the tea room. The tea room. <sighs> One thing that I thought was super interesting is um, Anna Biller was talking about how she wanted to make it like super pink and like so pink almost and she described it as almost being like a womb Mm. and um which I thought was really interesting and the cinematographer if you look you'll see that there's like everything is backlit with pink lighting to really push and there's like pink lighting cast on walls because the space was gray like a, basically a gray marble room in like an hmm. old bank or something or part okay. of an old hotel so they did all, played around with a lot of lighting just to really drive that home of all the pinkness and like the hyper femininity oh it was it was great mm-hmm. and that is interesting because I guess at those times that's where a lot of like birthing of ideas would come from so oh yeah that makes a lot of sense All right. So I think we've officially covered everything about this movie. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you can support us by buying us a coffee. If you have any questions, comments, requests for future episodes, anything, just hit us up. And as always, give us a follow on Instagram at Mystic in the Hag. And until next time, mystical beings. Bye. Bye.